to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, like many of you, I watched the events of the inauguration this past Wednesday as we transitioned from the 45th president of the United States to the 46th, President Joe Biden. And one thing that one of the speakers said at the inauguration was a quote from President Ronald Reagan from 40 years ago. He said this about inaugurations. He said, simultaneously, they're both mundane and miraculous events. And what he meant by that was they're mundane because they happen every four years. We expect them. It's part of the rhythm, right? But they're miraculous because they do happen every four years. What he meant by that was that if you look at the whole scope of history, the peaceful transition of power is actually something that's rather new by and large. And I think that's been a lot on our hearts the last several weeks, especially having a peaceful transition of power. And I mention that now because what we hope for, what we long for, what the election was all about was the establishment of good leaders in our country for our whole world, you know, right? the United States in particular. But what Paul is showing us here in this section of the letter to uh, Timothy, the first of two letters as part of our series here called Letters to a Son, is he's saying, as important as leadership elsewhere is, it's even more important to have good leadership in the local church community. And I would go so far as to say this, that good leadership makes or breaks an organization. I don't think that's simply true of the church. I think it's true of, of the organization that you work for, right? Now, as, there's a sense that as it goes with the leaders, so it goes with the organization. But I think that's even more acute within the church because of the standards, the moral standards, the spiritual standards the ethical standards that we are held to as leaders. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to take you on a journey of understanding how it is that the Holy Spirit has organized the church, moving it from uh, a group of followers in a, in a small home for, as it goes in more complexity, how it changes and the need for what he calls overseers or pastors here in the text. And so this is a, a message that's really for my elders here at the church. It's for us who are pastors. But it's also a, a conversation that I want everyone to eavesdrop in on. So to that extent, let's ask these two questions. Number one, what's required of an elder? What's required of a pastor of the church? And then number two, what's the result of that requirement? Like what should happen and what does happen when good leaders are in place. So the very first thing here that we want to look at is the question, what is required? Look at with me again at verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, there are two things that I want to point out regarding 
uh, what's required here. The first thing is calling, and the second thing is going to be character. I'm going to spend a lot more time on the character part. But as part of calling, let me address now an elephant in the room. And that's the fact that, that Paul makes it very clear here that he's talking to men. And he says here, a husband of one wife, and uses the male pronoun. What do we do with that? And I want to say this to you, that, that uh, it'd be very easy, very tempting to just not point that out. But I think that would leave us as a congregation in a place of confusion. Therefore, we need to tackle that. And even though that's not the focus of this text, it's in the background of this text. And in another text, actually, he does more of a focus on it. And so let me tell you my own understanding of this as an elder, as a pastor here at City Church, as well as the representation of all of our elders here. And that is, as I understand the text, as I've been wrestling with this for years, I feel bound by my conscience as I wrestle and interpret the Scriptures to believe that Paul is correct when he says here that this is an office for men only. And let me tell you why I believe that's the case. Paul's not a misogynist. Paul is, is not being uh, you know, led astray, quote-unquote, by the culture of his time or anything like that, though it was a patriarchal culture by and large around him in the Greco-Roman world. Certainly that was the case. But there's another passage elsewhere before this where Paul says that the reason for this is he goes back to creation, the story of Adam and Eve. Now that seems like a little strange. So let me take a couple minutes here and tell you what that's going on, and then I'm going to show you how that's related to what Paul's doing here in the text. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam is given a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's given all the freedom in the world in the Garden of Eden, but the one thing that he's prohibited to do is eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, that's a whole other story as to what that means. I don't, that's not part of the context here. But what you see, the very next chapter is that Satan enters into the Garden of Eden. And what does he do? He goes to Eve. And what does he say? He says, is it true? That God said that you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, nor touch it. Now, Eve's response is, well, no, we're, we're not allowed to eat of that tree. And, yeah, so we're not allowed to touch it. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, God never said you couldn't touch it. And so what Satan's doing is that he's, he's testing to see, hey, the message that you heard from Adam, because Eve didn't receive the command, in chapter 2, it was Adam who actually received that prohibition. And he's testing to see, did you hear this correctly? And as soon as he, you know, realized, it's almost like the telephone game. Maybe Adam did say it, but then she heard something else. Who knows exactly what happened? Or maybe Adam just didn't give the, the prohibition at all to Eve. What's your point, Scott? <laughs> what are you trying to How does this have to do with anything? Here's what it has to do with. Paul says the basis for men in this role has to do with creation. And the reason why that's important is what we see happen with Adam is he abdicates his role as a guardian of the faith. And here's what I mean by that. The Hebrew word in Genesis is shamar, and it's used of a temple guard and elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's a picture of someone who prohibits an outside unholy force from contaminating perfection, from contaminating holiness. It's to protect, in other words. And what Adam does in Genesis chapter 3 is it says right in the text, right after the temptation, that, that Adam was there and he was silent. In other words, in Adam's passivity, he creates chaos. Now let me also say this. Most of the problems of this world are the result of men abdicating leadership. 
Most of the problems of this world are because men fail, either by being passive in their leadership or by being hostile, authoritarian in their leadership. Both of those cause chaos. Most of the world's problems are because of men, okay? Hear me say that right now. And this is the story of what happened. Now, why does Paul do? Here's why. Here's where this is all coming uh, to a point here, I hope. What the church is, according to Paul, is God's new society. It's God's new creation. And the vision that Paul is given here is that, is this, that, that men would take the role that was abdicated by Adam and would guard and lead well. Why? For the purpose of the flourishing of all people. This is how I understand this text. This is how I understand and interpret what, what is happening here prior to this text as well as within this text. And I knew that I could not talk about other things here in the text without first mentioning that. Now, I will say this. My conscience is bound in my interpretation, but I have friends, I have colleagues, I have mentors who would disagree with that interpretation. And all I can tell you is this. No matter where you land on this understanding of, of the gender of an elder, you must go to Scripture only for that. You cannot go to culture. You cannot look to the culture around to say, well, this is an unpopular opinion today. Therefore, how could I possibly hold uh, this opinion, the one that Scott is, his interpretation here? Let me suggest this. The only way you can land rightfully on this text, or you're understanding that, is to wrestle with the Scriptures. And I would, I would love to have a conversation further. Another pastor here, Kirsten, has actually written a whole paper on the subject where when she started the paper, she actually began in a different position where she landed, coming to a place of agreement with what I've presented here in the understanding of an elder. And so I say that with humility. I say that as your pastor and your friend. This is my understanding. But I could not go on with the rest of this without first addressing that. Now, with that excursus, here in the background is context. Now, let me talk with you about calling and then character. The first thing I want you to see here in the text, it says in verse 1, that the, the elder to be, potential elders, to aspire or desire. It's, it's saying, who is it among you that aspires or desires this role? Right? And so there is a calling here. And there's both an internal calling as well as an external calling that's going on. And he says here that it's a noble task. And maybe in light of what I just said, especially in a world where perhaps my understanding of this text is not as popular as it once was, you can see something of the noble task that Paul is calling these leaders to, to have courage and to lead well. And there's a, there's a two-part calling here. There's an internal work that's a, and then an external work. The internal work being uh, that sense of call, uh, that aspiration, that desire. But also there's got to be an external call. And for myself and Mike, for instance, when we were in seminary, we both felt the call, and it was internalized. But at some point, there had to be an external confirmation of that call for me that happened uh, for over about a five- to six-year period, where I felt called, and then uh, through theological examination, examination of my character, a spiritual examination, and a number of other things. Eventually, in February of 2006, they laid hands on me, and they confirmed me as an elder within the church. An internal call, a sense of call, had to be confirmed externally. And I think this is important because it's, it's the prompting of the work of the Holy Spirit that calls someone to consider being an elder. Then there's an external examination that confirms, yes, this individual has the character that we're going to talk about in a second. They have the calling, as it were. 
which leads now to something that Teresa of Avila said in a work called Interior Castle. She was a Christian mystic from approximately four to 500 years ago. She said this, It is foolish to think that we will enter heaven without entering into ourselves. What does she mean by that? It means it's impossible to actually uh, move into the position of leadership without a greater sense of self-awareness. We all know this. We've all met leaders or heard of leaders, and we sense that there wasn't a self-awareness about them. They're, they weren't aware of both their strengths and their weaknesses, and so they're just sort of fumbling through leadership. And what Avila, Teresa of Avila is saying is that, that there must be a great sense of, of self-awareness. What is God doing? What is he shaping within us? Which now leads to the second thing here, and that is character. Beginning verse 2, I just want to read the first few lines of verse 2. Uh, Paul says this, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. Therefore an overseer must be, our pastor must be above reproach. And, and then there are ten traits, ten markers that Paul gives us about what it means to be above reproach after that. And I want to say this, why is Paul doing this with Timothy? Timothy was the pastor over the church in Ephesus. And remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, that, that primarily he's dealing with false teachers there. These are, these are people that have, have an aptitude to teach, but they're not teaching the truth. And so they're not meeting the qualifications of a pastor. Uh, they may have some of the qualifications, but they clearly don't have the full character because they're leading God's people astray. And so, so Paul is laying out here in these 11 traits, what is it that a pastor needs to have in terms of calling and character in particular that's so important? And what Paul says here, and if you hear nothing else, please hear this. He says character is so much more important. It trumps competency any day of the week. Character is the most important trait that a leader can have. It's much more important than even their skill set. Skill sets, that can be trained. Just as the announcement was given earlier about, about what you can do on the, on the tech board back there, the sound and such, you can train that. But character isn't as easily trained. And so Paul gives us that picture here. And I want to say this. It's not just true uh, that the, they missed the qualification of these false teachers. It can also be true of true teachers as well. What do you mean, Scott? Well, I think you know what I mean. How many, how many pastors have been in the news in the last five to six years? By the way, it's always been going on, obviously. It's only been the last few years that it seems that it's been making the news. But how many pastors do you know that have had to walk away from ministry or have been forced out of ministry because of their failure of character. In 20 years of ministry, I can tell you this, I've seen it happen over and over and over again, including to friends of mine. And, and I, I could go through this whole list, and virtually everything in this list is an example of someone I know that, that abdicated leadership, that failed. They were hostile, they were abusive. Uh, the lack of fidelity... No wonder, in my, one of my favorite movies, Braveheart, Edward Longshanks, who's the king of England, if you know the story, it's about William Wallace, this rebellious upstart from Scotland, and he and his fellow rebels are, are beginning to win battles on the field against the English troops, and this sends them into disarray, and there's a war council, and they're trying to figure out how to strategize. How do you take out uh, the forces of William Wallace and Edward Longshanks? If you remember the scene, if you saw the movie, he says this, Strike the shepherd, scatter the sheep. Like, like all 
Satan needs to do is strike the shepherd of the church or the shepherds of the church. The elder, all the, because if you destroy the public character of the church, you can neutralize the church. Just like Longshanks understood, take out William Wallace and, and you can take out his forces. You can send them into disarray, perhaps defeat them eventually. Right? And this is all that has to be done. Paul understands that, and so he gives us the character. Now, there are ten traits. I don't have time to go through them all. Let me just mention a few by reading verses 2 through 5 with you again. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Again, so many things in here. I think, again, like that last one, as a, as a father, uh, as a husband, of, uh, it just, it's sobering to think through uh, caring well for my household is a reflection of caring for the church. But let me mention uh, a few specifically now in greater detail. First, when he says husband of one wife, what is he saying there? Now, polygamy was an issue that happened in Ephesus, in that culture, but that's not actually what Paul's talking about. When he says husband of one wife, he's not, he's not saying uh, just one at a time, that sort of thing. No, what he's saying here is sexual fidelity. Now, the reason why that's so important is that Ephesus is a large city in the ancient world, by ancient standards at least. Being part of the Greco-Roman culture, it was very common, and there's a double standard here. It was allowed for men, but not for women. And what was very common were that men would have mistresses. Uh, they would have concubines. The concubines sometimes were also uh, part of their um, of the sexual relationship as well, but certainly the mistresses were. It's a place of sexual pleasure for the married men of Ephesus. And the wives were only there to bear them legitimate children. In a Roman society, that was a significant thing. And so sexual pleasure primarily wasn't found in the marriage. It was primarily found outside the marriage. And Paul knows that all these new converts coming into the church, they're coming from pagan backgrounds. You don't just convert everything overnight. Your soul, in a sense, is converted, but, but your sexuality may take time. Your pocketbook may take time as you are discipled. You go further up and further into Jesus, as I like to say. And Paul is aware of that. And so what he says here is that one of the very, very first thing, really, he's saying here is the character is, is, is there sexual fidelity? And again, as I mentioned earlier, I mean, how many pastors do you know that have fallen by the wayside over this issue? You see? The reputation of Christ is at stake. We know this. But he goes on. And let me mention another one here. Uh, he says uh, they are to be hospitable, right? I don't know if you expected that in, in this line of thinking here, but I, I find it fascinating. You know, the word hospital comes from this. The reason why, by the way, we have so many hospitals with saint in the name or the American Red Cross is because this is a virtue of the church that was quite different, actually, from the pagan world. And so, uh, hospitality industry, the hotels, where did those come from? Well, it came actually from the tradition of hospitality for, for way stations, for wayfarers along the ancient roads. And a lot of that was driven by a Christian ethic, caring for the outsider, caring for the foreigner. Hospitality industry, 
hospitals and so forth. And, and even this week, I got to see this actually practiced by one of her elders. I was having lunch with one of them. And, and we came out of a restaurant, and as we were coming out, exiting, a homeless man came by. And uh, to his credit, he didn't ask for money, but he said, I'm hungry. Uh, can you provide a meal for me? And before I could even respond, this elder I was with did and said, absolutely. He said, we just came out of that restaurant. There's a menu on that door. Uh, once you figure out what you want, you can have whatever you want. And not only did that, didn't just not, he didn't just provide a meal for this gentleman, but he provided a conversation. They were conversing back and forth about other things beyond food. And I marveled because I was literally that day working on this text, thinking about that, and I actually watched one of my elders live into their calling to be hospitable. Now, of course, all people are called to be hospitable. This isn't just a trait of an elder, but it certainly is a mark of the church. And if leadership doesn't do it, who might do it, right? And so Paul points this out here. Then he goes on to say this. He says they must be able to teach. There's a whole list, by the way, in a different part of this letter about deacons, the other office of the church, as they uh, serve out, especially around areas of mercy and justice and the care for the church, including its physical buildings and so forth. And one of the things that you see in that list, the, the only thing that's different really from this list is apt to teach or able to teach. Paul is calling forth, in this case, elders who have the ability to teach God's word. Now, remember what we talked about earlier about shamar, that Hebrew word about guard. And remember, these are false teachers. And, and part of what elders are intending to do, what they should do, isn't just preaching or teaching. I mean, that's one, one aspect of teaching. But not all are called to the preaching of God's word. But what they all are called to is be guardians of the church, protecting the church from outside forces that would stain and contaminate the name of God through false teaching. And so Paul says they must have a understanding of the word. We would say they must have an understanding of the gospel and all of what that means in order to shepherd, in order to lead well. But Paul's not done here, simply verse 5. And so therefore, I want to make a comment or two here about verses 6 and 7 in closing of this first point here. Let's read those verses again. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. One of the things that Paul was concerned about, especially you can imagine that, that in this early instance of the church, it's just being born and you have all these converts, right? And they're coming out of paganism. They have all these different value systems that are now being challenged. And you can imagine that one of the challenges was that they would be tempted to very quickly put someone in leadership because they need bodies in leadership if all these people are being converted. And Paul says, not so fast. Be careful. Paul himself actually spent several years being trained. There was a gap between his conversion in the book of Acts and actually when you next see him on the scene, he had been being uh, mentored. He was being discipled for several years. That is Paul. Paul was being discipled before he moved into leadership. He has experienced this. He knows something about it. And what he suggests is it's important that when we put people in leadership in the church, there is a maturity that has been tested and examined so that we know that we can trust them. And one of the things that he points out here is being puffed up, the conceit here. What, what is exactly, it means a lot of things, but one of the things it certainly means here is how we leverage and use power. How do we use authority? And what was evidently happening was, especially with these false teachers, but 
they were using the, the authority behind the office, right, to build up their own reputations. And they probably liked the feeling of being in charge, large and in charge, we like to say. And Paul says, absolutely not. That is not what it means to be a servant of the Lord. John Stott, a pastor who has since passed, he said this, the authority by which the Christian leader leads is not power but love, not force but example, not coercion but reasoned persuasion. Leaders have power, but power is safe only in the hands of those who humble themselves to serve. I think that's beautiful. And as you can imagine, this week has been very sobering for me as I've been reflecting upon my own leadership here. I've been in this church since we started it, 13 plus years ago. And a number of years ago, I actually asked our leadership team, our our elders, if they would do what's called a Leadership 360 on me. I asked with a lot of fear and trepidation, to be honest with you, but I really did want to know. And the reason why was because I wanted to be a better leader. I wanted to grow. I, didn't, I, I wanted to know what were my blind spots. And in, in that process, I learned some of what they were. And, and it was sobering. And, but I'm grateful for that journey. I'm grateful for that experience. I think it really has truly helped me be a better leader in the last five years since that examination. And I remember something that Pete Scazzaro, a sort of mentor of mine, said in a book called Emotionally Healthy Leader. He said, you must understand that the, with the, the authority of the office, that um, our influence is greater than we might imagine, that our words and, and our behaviors and so forth, all of that matters. James 3.1 says that the teachers are held to a higher standard within the church because we're rightfully, hopefully, rightfully handling the Word of God. And that, that is a humbling thing. That's a sobering thing. As I think about even what I was sharing earlier, about my understanding of eldership. And, and so I bring all this together to say to you that character is the most important thing for your leadership. And my hope and prayer is, is that you can, you can go through this week and all the weeks to come here at City Church and feel um, encouraged by the leaders that are here at City Church. And, and if that's the case, if, if we are living into our calling, if our character is on display and it's a good character, then the second question is already answered in a way. The question being, what's the result of what's required? And I'm not going to spend much time on this, but suffice to say, it's, it's one thing primarily. And that is the reputation of Jesus Christ is held high and he is made famous. One of the things that we like to say around here at City Church is that our vision is to make Jesus Christ famous. We want people to know him. Not just about him, but to actually truly know him, to engage and enter into a relationship with him. And then to know God the Father through him. And to that the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives to change their character from the inside out. This is what we want. We want God's reputation to be made much of, you see. How's that happen? And the answer is this. This character, these 11 traits, Jesus Christ is the only one who perfectly lived into these traits, friends. Your pastors here, my hope and prayer, your experience of, of your elders, not just those who teach up front, but the elders that serve also behind the scenes, my hope and my prayer is that your experience will be these character traits, but you also know that they're not perfect. Even James 3.1, where it says, we're held to a higher standard, right after that, verse 2, it says, but we know that, that all teachers uh, fail the mark of perfection. Yes. That's right. We make mistakes. Um, and not just in our teaching, but sometimes even in our, our character, this side of heaven. That's for sure. 
which is why your hope cannot be in the leadership of this church ultimately. Your hope must be in Jesus Christ, who is the perfect living example of what it means to be a shepherd of God's people. In fact, that's a term that Jesus used of himself in John chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, where he said this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Sometimes in the church we refer to elders as undered shepherds. Why? Because we are under the authority of the good shepherd. See, rightfully understood, when we are good leaders in the church, we are submitted, rightfully so. As we, as we encourage and, and challenge our people to be submitted to the Lord, we ourselves must be submitted to the Lord as leaders. Therefore, it changes how we leverage our power. It changes how we leverage our influence and our authority. We become servant leaders because Jesus Christ was the first servant leader. James Hunter, a writer and a Christian, said this, Jesus didn't use a power style because he had no power. King Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Romans, those folks had all the power. But Jesus had a great deal of influence, and he was able to influence people even to this day. Now, if I had one quibble with Hunter on that, it would be that I don't think it's just influence he has today. He has power, for it's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself that has brought me to faith, that brought you to faith. It's the power of God in the church. But his point here is about influence, and that good leadership doesn't need to use and leverage power but it's leveraged by modeling servant leadership. It's to bring forth influence, the influence of Jesus Christ, not only in the church, but into those outside the church. That's discipleship. That's the mission of the church. That's why putting good leaders in place within the church is so critical to the mission and the message of Jesus Christ into our world today and forever. And so what does it mean for us? Again, this is the eavesdropping but I want to address the elders here. What does it mean? Here's what it means. It means that our reputation is not in our position. It's not in the the letters by our name or something like that. Our reputation is the reputation of Jesus Christ who knew that the way up was the way down. This is the mark of what it means to lead God's people with humility. And it's true for all of us that we should yearn and aspire and desire the reputation of Jesus Christ. And so here's what I want for us now as well as in the future. City Church doesn't need elders who have it all together. Uh, We don't need elders who are at the top of their game and their skill sets and competencies. But we need elders who are broken, who have been crushed on the rocks of God's love and understand their powerlessness and their daily need of Jesus. Say, have mercy, O Lord, have mercy. Isn't that the sort of leader that you would serve under? Isn't that the sort of leader that would, that would drive you to the cross? That would drive you to the mission of Jesus Christ into the world for your life and for others? I'll close with this. It's an image. Um, and it's uh, Laura Davis, who sometimes leads worship here. Her husband, you may not know this, but her husband, Ben Davis, uh, has been a uh, basically a CrossFit coach. Some of you know that I started to CrossFit about seven years ago. I did that because in my 40s, I wanted to, to be healthy uh, long after my kids have grown up. I, I want to be able to do that longer, you know, have strength and, 
One of the things that Ben said the very first day of class, I remember seven years ago, uh, Ben said, he said, there, there really are seven functions in cross fitness. He talked about some of the endurance, speed, stamina, balance, strength, and so forth. He said, but here's the truth of the matter. He says, he says no crossfit, CrossFit athlete will ever be the best of any of those. Like, all, you'll always find someone that's stronger. I right? think about the people that go in the gym and they just do bicep curls all day long, right? The, you know, there'll always be someone who's stronger at, 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 some, at one of the, uh, the, the fitness or one, any of the exercises that we do. You'll always find someone that's faster. You'll always find someone with a greater stamina or endurance and so forth. He says, but the whole point is that in your core, there's balance. He says, in each of these activities, these seven components of functional fitness, he says, there's to be balance in your life. And I thought, man, that is a good picture of what we intend City Church to be. Here's the truth. There are better preachers than me. You can go to podcast right now and look them up. <laughs> right? You know who they are because you also listen to them. Right? Listen, you can go to certain places and you'll feel like you just walked into a Coldplay concert. The worship's so off the chain and professional, right? And, and that's not us either, right? Like you'll always find some. But the goal of City Church is that we would, in our core being of our character, we would be faithful and balanced as disciples of Jesus Christ into all things. And I humbly would commend and suggest to you today that even though we're not perfect, I think that we have really moved towards achieving that here in the last 13 years, that we be faithful in all things. And so I end by simply saying this, that, that would you pray for your leaders here? And for those who are, who are not leaders, maybe there's a calling here, an internal call to an aspiration, perhaps, a desire, perhaps. Maybe that will be confirmed externally in time. But regardless of where you are here at City Church, would you ask the Lord for good leadership, for good under-shepherds at City Church, not simply this year, but in all years to come. And then pray broadly for His church globally, that the church would receive good leaders and that their character would be faithful to the Word of God, that we would be faithful to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, to walk in the dust of the rabbi, as one writer put it. So this is our hope. This is my hope. And so may we live into this. May we be a church of good leadership as a result. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call uh, those. You equip them, you prepare them, and you call them to lead your church. I pray that we would do it with humility. I pray that we would never be authoritarians, that we would uh, never lead from a, a, a place where people would feel oppressed or suppressed, but instead that in our leadership, People would flourish. Men, women, and children would flourish as City Church. We pray that for your church global as well, even today. We pray that your church global and universal would flourish because you've called elders to lead, and they have not abdicated the call of leadership, but instead have stood to the challenge and are ready to lead. Lord, call us to serve well, to see that the way up is the way down so that those outside the church may want to know who you are. And as a result of that, come to know you personally. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Now we take some time to continue in worship through confession. And as we do, I want to give you a moment first just to prepare your heart to ask the Spirit.